0: may be seated. This morning we are continuing our series in Exodus. Um, Before we do, can I get a, can I get, uh, hey Larry, do you mind grab me some water? If I'm going to make it through this, I think I'm going to need it. We uh, are in, uh, we're getting closer to the event from which the book of Exodus gets its name. The rescue of God's people, leading them as slaves Disconnected slaves who had nothing in common other than their slave master to belong to To uh, God himself to be uh, not only drawn out of Egypt But drawn to God to fulfill promises that had been long given to their forefathers And uh, and nonetheless that exodus event uh, is not yet here In fact, we are seeing all of the really brutal and terrible events that led up to finally Pharaoh saying enough we are in our second week, in fact, of, what, of the famous plagues, the famous ten plagues of Egypt. Last week, we looked at six of these. Um, we looked at the first two rounds of the plagues. They happen in threes before the final and uh, most terrible plague, which we'll learn about next week. And now we are in the last round of the plagues, the last three. And I wish I could say it gets better for Egypt but it doesn't it gets much much worse at this point um, and not just the plagues But the stubborn stubbornness of pharaoh gets much worse as well in fact That's what we're going to be focusing in on today as we look at exodus uh, We will be explaining very briefly the plagues But then we are going to spend most of our time looking at the hard heart of egypt's king Now we've mentioned it along the way this Hard-heartedness. We read it um, often throughout this passage. You can't miss it about the, uh, some, some manner of phrasing the, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened or Pharaoh hardened his own heart or the Lord even hardened Pharaoh's heart, which we're going to look at today. Larry discussed it a few weeks in his sermon um, a few weeks ago, um, but this week we're going to again dive right into the hard heart itself, spend more time than we have been able to thus far and see how it actually reflects back perhaps more on us than we realize we're going to unpack this passage in three parts the signs of of a hard heart number two the source of a hard heart and number three the purpose of a hard heart the signs of a hard heart the source of a hard heart and the purpose you ready I hope you'll keep your Bibles open, I want you to see these verses. After all, we didn't read, believe it or not, all of the verses we're going to be covering today. We're going to be covering two chapters, not just one plague, but three plagues, and we just read one. In fact, the summary of the hail and the summary of the locusts are the longest summaries of any plague that we've seen thus far. Um, And there's great reason for that, we'll get into this in a second, but in case you weren't with us last week, we've considered six plagues already, a river of blood infesting frogs, ugh, and these swarming gnats, or we said might be lice or mosquitoes, biting flies, and rotting live livestock, and then finally, festering boils. Believe it or not, it's gonna actually get worse this week. Six plagues, each worse than the one before, but only, again, the first two rounds of a holy war. This week, again, we're going to consider the final round before the 10th and final plague, and as annoying and as disruptive as the plagues were last week that we considered, something shifts in these final three. Prior to this, and the comfort, sure, of the Egyptians was threatened. Their property, their animals, even their bodies were threatened. But for the very first time, starting with these plagues, human life is threatened. And something about These plagues, according to our passage, represents the full force of God's own wrath. Chapter 9, verse 14, look at this verse with me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. We looked at this a little bit last week, the grand theme behind the plagues. One of the themes uh, that we must see of why God sent them is so that All would know that he is the Lord. That's true for the Israelites. It's also true for the Egyptians as well. That God has purposes for them. Things they will learn along the way. And though we don't have time to expand on each of these plagues this week, that purpose continues. But notice again, there's something special about these three, that they represent all my plagues on you yourself, referring to Pharaoh. First, a killer storm. Unlike anything that would have ever been seen in this part of the world. Egypt has been in existence for about, at this point, maybe about 2,000 years. Nothing had been seen like this for two millennia, that means. And this storm included boulders of ice that would have not only flattened crops, but did you notice, broke trees, smashed them to the ground, and would have stoned to death any living thing that happened to be unfortunate enough to be caught outside. It's one of the only plagues that came with a warning label for everyone who heard it, in which Moses says, Please, listen to me. Bring yourselves and your animals inside, that they might have a chance to spare their lives. And when it is done, it obliterated at least half of their crops, and with it, the nation's economy, let alone the people and animals that were struck down. Hailstorms like this have occurred in places actually today. I don't know if you realize this. In India, in 1888, it's recorded that one hailstorm killed 240 people. Or in Germany, in 1984, a hailstorm killed or severely injured nearly 400 people. But still, this storm, I suspect, was much, much worse the eighth plague, though, the next one, <coughs> would have been no less serious. A plague of locusts, which today, I mean, realize it doesn't come with the same kind of trembling for us. We, I don't know that you've ever feared a locust plague as much as they would have in the ancient world. A plague of locusts would have, again, uh, the swarms of these locusts could have been up to tens of billions of little biting insects, and the swarm would have been as large as football fields or small cities. In fact, one swarm uh, even recently in northern Kenya of locusts was measured to be 25 miles long and 37 miles wide, darkening the sky. It's estimated that just an average swarm, now this is an average swarm of 80 million insects, imagine that, 80 million, average, can consume as much as 35,000 people can in a day. Our passage tells us the locusts covered the surface of the ground and devoured every green thing in their sight, everything that had made it through the hailstorm. And it was so serious and severe that Pharaoh pleads with God that he might remove, as he says it, this death from me. In verse 17 of chapter 10. This brings us to the ninth plague, which may be the shortest of the three in verse count and time frame, but it may have been the most terrifying to go through. It tells us a darkness descends on the nation of Egypt, a darkness that does not lift for three days. But verse 21 actually tells us more than that. It tells us this darkness could be felt. I mean, does that give you goosebumps? A darkness that could be felt. Anybody a horror movie fan here? Okay, so I'm not. But think about this. It meant that the pitch blackness, anybody scared of the dark as a kid? How many of you are still scared of the dark? But still, think about like a nightmare, the worst nightmare you've ever had. You wake up in in the middle of the night, absolutely terrified of some nameless fear around you that's hidden in the dark. Even though your mind knows that it's not there, that sense of dread that still hangs over you and takes a while to shake that's the image here it could mean that the darkness simply was so thick that they had to feel their way around in the dark but i think it may also refer to a kind of supernatural dread a horror a sense of doom that descended along with the dark so much so that it tells us no one left where they were for three days at least twice we are told that nothing like this had ever come against Egypt. None of these plagues on their own. Nothing had ever been experienced like the nation had, let alone in the span of a few months. And nor would they ever experience something like this again. And in each plague, we are told that Israel is spared. And There's one group of people that does not experience this each and every time, and it's God's own not because of their faith, but simply because he is their God and proving it to the nation of, Israel, of, of Egypt. Yet no matter how severe these plagues become, even when Pharaoh's cry uh, that Egypt is ruined, and even as his, his servants cry out with him to back down, Pharaoh does not. Pharaoh doesn't soften, he doesn't relent, not for a moment. Instead. With each plague, the narrator, who is likely Moses himself, tells us that the king's heart was hardened again and again and again. And as enthralling as the plagues are, almost like a car accident, when you drive past it, you have to slow down to see it. We want to know the juicy details of the plagues. We want to actually move past them because we need to see what the emphasis is in on this passage. And I think it's the hardness of Pharaoh himself. And that's what I want to spend some extended time looking at. After all, hardly a week has passed in Exodus that it hasn't come up. And with it, some very tricky questions. Questions about why and how someone could be so stubborn, so hard. And what it means that God was the one, at least in some ways, doing the hardening. You wouldn't be the only one who is tripped up by those verses. God promised, back in chapter 4 of Exodus, that Pharaoh would be hardened. He warns Moses. It's perhaps why Moses is skeptical, even when he sees apparent softening from Pharaoh. Before Moses had even stepped foot in Egypt, he was told to expect only hardness from its king. And sure enough, with every sign, it tells us that he was indeed hardened. If you look at the phrase, it says, "And and, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, just as the Lord said. But then again, um, there are times in this passage, especially the one that we're looking at this week, where the opposite seems to almost take place. Instead of hardening, it seems, wait a second, is Pharaoh finally going to soften? You have to wonder if Moses pleads and hopes that that might be finally the case. No one's more sick of all this than he is, eager to finally leave for the Lord's promises to come through. It seems, in fact, that Pharaoh... At least at some moments may even repent. Look back at chapter nine, if you would, with me. Just after the hail has finished decimating the crops of Egypt, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back to his throne room, and this is while the hailstorm is still going. Can you imagine that walk back to the palace, praying, "Don't hit me! Don't hit me! Don't hit me! Don't hit me!" as he's going and trusting the Lord's going to protect him on the way. Shows up as the As it says, the lightning and the hail was coming down, cratering the earth. Pharaoh, at this point, seems to change his mind and repent in some ways, or he at least pleads for his life. And he does so very differently, though, than he has done before. He does it with stronger language than he has done before. And I want you to see it firsthand. Chapter 9, verse 27, if we can put this on the screen. Chapter 9 verse 27. You guys are so quick with that. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, what does he say? This time I have sinned. He doesn't just say that. He says, the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. How many of you like having someone finally tell you you are in the right? Can I I hear that once more? I I I was right? Here's Pharaoh finally admitting it, right? that the Lord is in the right. In fact, he says in the strong strong language, I have sinned. For the first time, he recognizes and admits not only that he has made a wrong choice or that he needs mercy, but that he himself has offended the living God himself, a God he is finally beginning to take serious, at least in some way, a God who he says is in the right. It's not the only time in our passage that he does this just after the plague of locusts. Pharaoh says something similar in chapter 10, verse 16. I want you to turn there. Chapter 10, verse 16. Then, Mo, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. And verse 17, again, chapter 10, verse 17, Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once. I love it, as if he's like, I've learned my lesson, please, just one more time. Okay, forgive me only this once. And plead with the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. Let me ask you, is is this repentance? Is, Is this what we see here? He's finally turning and changing? Certainly sounds right. Is he turning in faith? On the surface, it might seem like it. In fact, if God hadn't warned Moses not to trust it, I suspect Moses may have. Even before Pharaoh changes his mind, though, I think that we can see this whole thing is disingenuous. We can see signs of the fact that this repentance is not true. In fact, I think we can see that what these, uh, I want to see two signs that I think are just as much of a sign of his hardened heart in which he uh, Just as much of a sign of a hardened heart as when he goes back on his promise I think we again begin to see just how deep the roots of his unbelief go and how deep perhaps ours can as well the first sign is Pharaoh's bargaining the first sign is that Pharaoh tries to make bargains with God himself. Twice in our passage, even though God's expectation is clear that what he is demanding from Pharaoh is nothing less than the final and total release of his people that they might serve him, an exodus, total and final of the Hebrew slaves, even though God has been very clear about this, Moses, I mean sorry, Pharaoh tries to work some sort of compromise out we see this actually in one of the plagues we looked at last week in chapter 7 verse 25 after the plague of flies in which pharaoh offers to let the people go but only for a temporary holiday as he says and it has to be within the borders of egypt it says fine you want to go offer your sacrifices go do it but you better stay close the bargain is of course refused by moses but in our passage that we're looking at today, Pharaoh tries again. Okay, that didn't work the first time. I'm going to try in, verse cha- in chapter 10, verse 10, prior to the plague of locusts, when again <clears throat> he offers the people to go. He says, Okay, I'll let you go, but only the men. After all, that's all that really matters, right, Moses? Again, it's pretty sexist in its terminology. It assumes that the children and women, of course, shouldn't be a part of the worship that God needs. And Moses will have nothing of it. The entire people belong to him. He says, "Okay, just just take the men after all. That's that's what you really want. Leave the women and little ones behind." And of course, this too is refused. Moses very tactfully again refuses it, but in verse 24, after the ninth plague of darkness comes over the land, Pharaoh tries just one more time at a compromise. He says, "Okay, final offer. I will let your entire people, men, women, and children, leave, but I want your herds and your flocks to stay behind with me. Moses, again, under God's instruction, refuses. It's not just fascinating, but honestly infuriating how stubborn Pharaoh is in all of this. Not only that, to imagine... That God is a God who can be bargained with. He isn't the only one to assume so, though. In fact, I think many, many people try to bargain with God all the time. Including you and me. Saying to Jesus, Jesus, you can have all of me. Just not that. Oh, and that not my comfort... Not my reputation, certainly. Not, not my dreams. You're not going to ask me to give those over. Not, not my family. You better not touch that, Jesus. Just not. You can, touch, you can have everything. You can have everything just... Not what I watch or how I spend my money or what I do with my body. I'm, I'm going to lock that door, but just don't, just that door from you. You can, you can have the whole house. You just keep that closet for myself. Some of us... Imagines that God will take that deal. After all, look at what I'm offering him. I'm offering him almost everything. Just like Pharaoh, we can try to make bargains, bargains with God. Bargains that stop short of true obedience, of true surrender, of you stop short again, of actual faith. As we fight desperately to keep circumstances just someone under my control. Something I can hold on to that I don't have to give over. To, To set the terms with God, at least in some way. So he's doing what I expect and will never ask more than I feel I can give. We want to keep at least some things back for ourselves, to keep at least one hand on the thing I just desperately do not want to lose. You might expect that Moses weary and ready for all of this to be done to take the deal that is offered to him after all it's it's better than nothing right i mean pharaoh's offered a lot but god is not a god who will be bargained with there is no offer i can make him that he needs or favor that i can do for him that puts him in my debt and he is not willing to flex on his terms he demands nothing less than total submission and surrender. Some of us might say, well, that's, that's the God of the Old Testament, the grumpy God, right? That's not the God of the New Testament, who wouldn't make demands like that. I mean, he's the God of love and mercy, right? But just consider Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 8. And the scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Assumingly, the scribe turned back. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and and bury my father. I'm not asking too much of you, Jesus. Just give me a little bit of time to, to bury dad. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Absolute and total surrender to his mission. Luke 14 puts this even more directly. Verse 26, just Jesus' own words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear their his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So I was teaching on this with my students recently, and I'll tell you what, when I Maybe it's a generational thing, but when I say, Jesus said, you must hate mother and father for me, they go, yes, finally, I've been given permission. Okay, that's not what this is saying. But it's saying that the love for Jesus must be greater than all things. There was no greater authority, greater value here than what you owed to mom and dad. You could say, Jesus would add, in our generation, he who does not hate his job. He who does not hate his reputation. He who does not hate his money. Jesus picks fights with all of us, asking from all of us more than we're willing to give, even our own lives. No less serious, significant, and unflinching demand than what God makes here of Pharaoh. Throughout his ministry, Jesus expects that his followers will be willing to leave behind everything, to surrender comfort and predictability, to sell their possessions even, if that's what it takes in following him. You find the more you read, of Jesus' ministry, that he expects them to surrender whatever it is that currently holds their heart and allegiance. Even their deepest desires. And it's often we don't realize those were our deepest desires until Jesus asks for them. God does not flex on his terms. He demands nothing less than total submission to his will. And when he doesn't flex, importantly, Pharaoh hardens himself even more. In chapter 10, verse 10, when Moses does not flex, he accuses Moses of having some evil purposes in mind. Does anyone else find that ironic? If anyone has evil purposes in mind, it's not Moses. It's Pharaoh. But isn't that how it works for us? I find it fascinating because often when it seems God asks too much from us, we begin to doubt if God has our good in mind. We begin to subtly assume that maybe god has evil purposes for me too we may not say it but when we want to hold something back from him it's because we do not trust him or perhaps love him as much as we do that thing we so cherish we begin to even see god as the person in the way to what i actually want but this isn't the only sign of hardness sign number two is not, so sign number one was his bargaining. Sign number, sign number two is the backtracking. This is perhaps the clearest sign. After all, it's how we got to plague number nine. Because it was refused eight other times and will be refused a ninth time. Pharaoh predictably backtracking on his promises. Consider in chapter 9, verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased... He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Notice it's not just Pharaoh in all of this, it's his servants as well. As soon as Pharaoh's circumstances change, in other words, as soon as the thing that was threatening him, the thing that he needed relief from, as as soon as it was over, as soon as the circumstances change, so does his mind, more than my family's does when we're trying to pick out a movie. This guy is all over the place. Why? Well, I think... It's for a couple reasons, but I think one of the main is because once he had what he really wanted, he no longer needed God or needed to keep him happy. For all the signs of repentance that it were, there was no true grief over sin. There was not enough to change his behavior for long, no matter what he said with his mouth even in confessing sin and asking for forgiveness, it shows his awareness of it was only shallow, not enough that he would accept the costs of what his promises would require, the costs of complete surrender. So long as Pharaoh continued to get what he wanted from God, there would be no true surrender to God. What he wanted was not God, but God's stuff. I think you can see how this relates to us as well. Maybe, like me, you have those in your life who offer to you what seem to be the sincerest of apologies, promises that it really will be different this time, that they really have changed, that they're finally seeing things clearly. They will never do that again. And everything in you wants to believe them, but then, yet again, you are left hanging out to dry. Anybody ever experienced that? It's not just that we experience this from others. If I'm honest, I see it in my own heart, just to be honest. How often my desperation for God corresponds to the desperateness of my circumstances. When my circumstances change, so does my mind, it would seem. When things are working out for you and me, we find it easier to forget God, to Justify little compromises, to grow in our distance from him, to begin to treat God like a genie who, will, who we seek out only when life begins to hurt. Think back to Pharaoh's apparent repentance. I think we have to say again, it's not repentance at all. What Pharaoh is experiencing, even when he asks for forgiveness, may be regret, but it certainly is not repentance. Repentance and the difference could, be, could not be more important. Let me give you an example. I work part-time as an affiliate professor at Missouri Baptist University, and one of the things I unfortunately have to handle every single semester is cheating. But when it comes to cheating, I find that there are two general students, two generally speaking, two kinds of students who deal with the cheating or when it's revealed. One, there, there's the student who is caught and it's caught red-handed. Maybe have you ever experienced something like that? Maybe as a kid or someone you most love, you you were caught in the middle of something, and you knew there was nothing that you could do or say that would explain your way out of it. Immediately a very powerful emotion sets in. And just like my students, you might find yourself making desperate promises. That was a one-time thing, you were under a lot of stress, you plead for another chance, you'll never do something like this ever again. Why? Why is the pleading? Where does that emotion come from? Where do the promises come from? It's so that whatever the punishment comes, whatever punishment comes, maybe it's going to I mean, it's not going to hurt so bad. Maybe I can avoid it entirely. It's like a child who grabs his behind and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What are they actually saying? Please don't spank me. Please don't spank me. On a rare occasion, though, I have had a student who seeks me out before they were caught. In fact, I might have never found out, but the student, often very broken up about what they have done, admits what they've done wrong, and here's what's most important, is willing to take whatever consequences come next. The first student is experiencing regret. The second is experiencing something closer to repentance. How can we tell the difference? Well, speaking from experience, it can be very difficult to differentiate the two, not just in the lives of others, but in our own hearts. But when it comes down to it true repentance grieves the wrong itself Well, regret grieves only its consequences true repentance grieves the relationship that was affected regret only grieves the fact that you were caught as donnie Friedrichsen puts it regret uses the words i'm sorry but means please stop talking about this so we can get back to ignoring the problem perhaps the greatest difference has to do, though, between regret and repentance, with what our passage reveals about the source of a hard heart, which leads us to our second part, again, the source. As I mentioned before, Pharaoh's hard heart is all over this passage, but the way it talks about Pharaoh's hard heart is not always the same. Uh, Three times, let me just give you an overlay of them, three times we are told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, okay? That's probably the one that we have the least problems with. Three times, God declares that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Six times, Yahweh actually hardens Pharaoh's heart. And seven times, it simply says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So, who is responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? For this going on as long as it did, of it making it to to not just nine, but ten plagues and the decimation of Egypt. We have to start by saying, we have to at least say, I don't, we don't have to start here, but we have to at least say that who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, Pharaoh did. From a human perspective, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And not just because the passage puts it that directly. We have clues of it all over the place. In fact, chapter 9, verse 17. I want you to look at this verse. Please look there with me. When it speaks of why God was bringing all of this judgment upon him. Why, Chapter 9, verse 17. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. You are still, what? Exalting yourself. In other words, it's not just that Pharaoh was stubborn. It was that he was stubbornly committed to something. What exactly? To himself. The reason Pharaoh would not soften and would only harden, no matter the cost, no matter the grief it would inflict upon others, is because when it comes down to it, Pharaoh was committed to exalting himself. Now, I have to tell you, you don't have to be Pharaoh or in much power to speak with to be committed to self as well. All it takes is to, be, is to give yourself more of your time and mental energy than you give to God and others. All it takes is to devote your daydreaming and your money to your own preferences and concerns. You can even appear very selfless and still exalt yourself. You can serve others not because you simply want to care for them for them, and as it, as it overflows from a genuine compassion, but because of the way it makes you look or makes you feel about yourself. To be able to pat yourself on the back and say, I'm a good person, or at least better than they are, let's be honest. This is why the Bible summarizes true love. As loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, I know many who look at that verse and say, well, that's proof. We need to start by loving ourselves. That's not what Jesus is teaching us there. In the Bible, Jesus assumes we already love ourselves pretty well, even if you don't have a high opinion of yourself. Think about how much time, effort, and energy is devoted to yourself. How much you think about yourself, even if you're in self-pity. How much of your mental effort and energy is focused on the person in the mirror. Jesus is saying, okay, let's take that standard. That's the standard for your love for everyone else. He raises the bar that high. Chapter 9, verse 30, gets even deeper to the heart of Pharaoh. And it says, but as for you and your servants... I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. In other words, in all of this, God is not shocked or surprised about Pharaoh's ongoing stubbornness. He is not tricked or fooled for a second. He knows that Pharaoh, regardless of what he might say, does not fear the Lord as God. He does not know the Lord as God, and he does not fear the one he should. It turns out, I don't know if you know this, this is the first time in the Bible that the words fear the Lord ever show up. It's important to say, and when, it, when the Bible speaks of fearing the Lord, it doesn't refer to some sort of cringing terror like an abused animal might feel towards its owner. That's not what the fear of the Lord refers to. But it also doesn't simply refer to a sense of respect. It's more than that. The fear of the Lord, you could say, is actually two things. First, it's profound awe at the supremacy and greatness of God. The awareness that God is God and I am not, and nor will I ever be, that he is creator and I am one of his creatures. But the fear of God also refers to a second thing, a trembling awareness that this God, being profoundly good and just and holy, does not mess around with sin. That is the kind of that the Bible says we should all have of the Lord. it it says that, in fact, that fear is the root of all wisdom. It has the potential to transform all of life once it has its effect. So which is it? Is it that Pharaoh was exalting himself, or is it that he did not fear God? I think we'd have to say it's both. They are related to one another. We cannot help, you see, but to exalt something in our lives as supreme. As we discussed last week, we are all worshipers giving something or someone supreme importance in our life. Or to use the language of this passage, we are always giving something or someone our fear. It just may not be God. Romans 1 puts it this way. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God four images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul assumes that we give our honor, in other words, to something or someone, our glory to something or someone, but it's usually something created, often exalting ourselves instead of the God who deserves it. That's why God says to Pharaoh in chapter 10, verse 3, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The only thing that would soften the heart of Pharaoh would be finally to give up his desperate attempt at self-exaltation and to humble himself under the, before the God who is actually in charge. And look at the damage that that stubborn self-exaltation worked on everything and everyone around him as it always does we insist on exalting ourselves it will always harm others but still as pharaoh is making a genuine choice or a series of genuine choices to reject god which he is rightly responsible for it is not sufficient to say that he has hardened his own heart we also need to say that the lord did the lord hardened pharaoh's heart in fact in these last two plagues that is where the author shines the spotlight twice he tells us in verse 20 and then in verse 27 in chapter 10 but the lord hardened pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go in other words in some real sense it is because the lord hardened pharaoh's heart that he would not let the people Now, some looking at this try to explain around this and saying that God simply allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. In a sense, that's true. Sin hardens us. It's one of its natural consequences. And by Pharaoh continuing to persist in sin without God's intervention, he allowed sin to have its natural effect. He handed Pharaoh over to the natural results of his sin and confirmed him in its consequences. Similarly, Paul is going to argue in Romans chapter 1 in the next verses That in response to humanity's ongoing rejection of him, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Paul uses the language of gave them up to the natural consequences and desires. I love those sweet little cries, by the way. There is a sense in that God allowed Pharaoh and all of Egypt to experience the collateral damage of sin. The natural effects of it, and instead of humbling themselves before God, they were humiliated in their own stubbornness. But the phrase, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, is also much more active than that, we have to say. It is purposeful, this hardening. He made sure that Pharaoh would not relent. God intentionally kept this going on. This, of course, brings up a lot of serious questions. The first Is God to blame for Pharaoh's sin? We have to say a confident no to that. The Bible is clear that God does not tempt, nor is he tempted by sin. God is perfectly just and righteous in all he does and cannot be blamed for sin, even as he may sovereignly ordain or allow it. Is this just fatalistic then? Are we just robots doomed to destruction? Do any of our choices matter? We have to say, yes, our choices matter, and no, this isn't fatalistic. After all, Pharaoh made genuine choices through all of this, and he wasn't exactly an innocent party before all the hardening took place. He was devoted, just like all his his fathers and grandfathers were, to the slavery and subjugation of the Hebrews. God may not have removed Pharaoh's blindness. His will, in a sense, was constrained... But just as all of us, again, are hardened by sin, blinded by sin, unless God provides sight, still, that doesn't give us a pass either. Pharaoh chose exactly what he wanted this whole time. Exactly what he wanted. He wasn't dragged kicking and screaming. He deserved the sentence as well. God's sovereignty, as mysterious as it is, is, does not compromise human responsibility. Not for a moment. It may compromise what you and I assume about free will, but not genuine human responsibility. Okay, third, is God just bloodthirsty? Does this confirm that God is actually not a God who can be trusted? Does he get his kicks in inflicting pain and judgment, like a child who burns up ants under a microscope? I mean, under a, uh, sorry, a, uh, whatever it's called. You know what I'm talking about. Magnifying glass. be much more complicated under a microscope. Again, we have to say no. After all, God makes it clear in chapter 9, 15, if his point was destruction, he could have done that a thousand different ways. He could have already destroyed Egypt if he wanted. He also gives Egypt and at least one of the plagues here a chance to be spared the destruction. In Ezekiel, it also puts it very clearly. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And 2 Peter tells us that God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not bloodthirsty. Still, for many of us, the question we're asking, well, this just seems unfair. How is God justified in hardening Pharaoh, let alone others He may choose to harden to the truth? Romans nine, again by Paul, takes this question on directly, using the example of, of Pharaoh. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Sounds like the question many of us ask. Is God unjust? By no means. For he says to Moses, and hear these words. They're going to come later in Exodus. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In other words, God's mercy is, is never something that can be demanded. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that maybe makes us emotionally comfortable immediately, but we must say that God's mercy is never something that can be demanded. I know some who, would, who have said of God, well, of course God forgives. Isn't that his job? The essence of mercy is that it's undeserved, and God has the rights to withhold it. In fact, he could have withheld it from you. If you are a Christian, it is because of God's grace, not because of your resume, that mercy has come overflowing to you. What is is unfair is that God saves and softens anyone. Now, I'm not going to pretend, again, this makes you feel better about all of this. Let me encourage you first to search the scriptures, to see what the Bible actually says. See what it says, not simply what our individualistic culture that worships our rugged autonomy, our right to say and do whatever we want. See what God says, and not merely what we have been taught to assume. But there's still more that this says about God's purpose in all of this, a purpose that I think actually does give us a great deal of comfort, and even as it might leave some lingering questions. And finally, the purpose of a hard heart. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. For this purpose I raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. To show you my power, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is God's purpose, not only in raising up Pharaoh, but we have to assume in hardening him. That God has greater purposes than we could imagine and what he is doing through something that is hard to understand one of God's purposes in fact is evangelistic that his name and the good news of his rescue would be proclaimed generation after generation after generation as it indeed will be in Israel by hardening Pharaoh in other words let me put this differently what does God accomplish but the salvation of those he loves And that the story of that rescue would be passed on and he received the glory that he is due. Now we have some difficulty emotionally celebrating God's sovereignty in softening some and hardening others. But we need to see what it accomplished. Not just in the Exodus, but in the cross of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, in Acts chapter four, listen to how it puts it. Acts chapter four, something fascinating is said. For truly in this city, There were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, who gathered around Jesus to crucify him? Absolutely everyone. Everyone who was in power, Jews and Gentiles, all held accountable for killing Christ. They genuinely, actively put him to death. And who is responsible for it? They are. We are, in a sense, according to the Bible. We would have done the same. But listen to what it says in verse twenty-eight: "To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place." Which is it? Are humans responsible, or is God sovereign? Both, and both must be true, friends. The gospel hinges on it: that Christ does not go to the cross as a mass as a, as a major accident. He doesn't die as a grand martyr. He goes in the purpose and power of God the Father himself, goes willingly unto death. If we have difficulty reconciling, again, God's sovereignty and responsibility, to reconcile that emotionally, look at what God himself did for you, planned for you, what cost he endured for you, and left nothing up to chance in hardening some, including Pilate and Judas and the Pharisees, in the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he delivered us from our sin. Luke 22, verse 22 puts it this way, for the son of man, this is Jesus himself speaking, goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Both are there. Friends, God's goodness and Well, one, we need to see that his purposes are always good. He's always just in everything he does, and we will see it in the end. He doesn't doesn't have two personalities. He's not two-face. Always reacting differently based on the circumstances. He is good and just in all that he does. And we will see it. But even now we see that the just wrath of God that was coming towards our own stubborn exaltation we were saved from by our savior facing the storm destruction and darkness we deserved the one who stopped the storm endured it himself and it's only awareness of that gospel that will finally soften our hearts as well make us willing to obey and surrender all let alone become bold with that good news that God's name might be known to the ends of the earth. Lord, we come to you as those who need your help to understand what the Bible actually says, even if it offends some of our assumptions, and we want to praise you as a sovereign God who does not leave our salvation to chance. No matter what it takes, you will bring us and deliver us safe over to yourself, not because of our resume, but because of your grace. Comfort our hearts and our question asking hearts in what you have done, what you have planned, what you have accomplished in your Son. And give us the boldness we need to make sense of the greater rescue that has come through Christ. And plead with all to no longer turn and harden their hearts, but to open their eyes, to soften and see. to worship and exalt god the only one who deserves it we pray all this for the matchless name of christ